because we are doing chapter 12 tonight, and I'll explain why we skipped 11. You'll have to wait till January 4th to get chapter 11. Um, but we are in Romans 12. They're kind of standalone chapters anyway, but Dave Barnes will be doing chapter 11 on January 4th. Uh, I already prepared this message, and I was planning on teaching it on this night because I can't do it in January. And then remember when we had the hurricane, uh, Nicole, and we had to like cancel Wednesday and everything got pushed back? I was like, oh, now I prepared 12. I can't do it in January. So we're doing 12 now, and 11 will be in the first week of January. So I know some of you are like, oh, so messed up because we're out of order, okay? Just hang in there with me, okay? So I titled this message, Thinking Like Jesus. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be thinking like Jesus. And Romans 12 is a great chapter at looking at that. Um, In 1 Corinthians 2.16, there's a part of that verse that says this, we have the mind of Christ. Perhaps you've you've heard that saying that we have the mind of Christ. Now, I know probably most people don't, well, I don't feel like I have the mind of Christ. Well, the Bible tells us we do. Why do we have the mind of Christ? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Now, we may not always think the right thoughts because we still have our sin nature, you know, our body of flesh and so forth. But God has put his spirit in us, and so he wants us to think more and more like him. And so this chapter, as we go through it, I hope it's going to help us to think more like Jesus. So let's start in verse 1 of Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... So that's a really important qualifier here. In in view of his mercy or his love for us, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. When you talk to believers and you mention worship, what's the first thing that people think about? Come on. You think about a song, right? Think about singing, a worship song. You think about singing, praise, and so forth. But it's interesting here that in verse 1 it says to offer our bodies, our bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, these people knew all about sacrifices because they would, you know, in the Old Testament, they would bring the animals, the the lambs, the bulls, you know, the doves or whatever, and they would sacrifice animals as an atonement for their sin uh, for a uh, to try to rid themselves of the guilt of sin, that the innocent would be dying for the for the uh, guilty. But now all of a sudden, he he starts here by saying that God, in his in his view of his mercy, of his love for us, he wants us to take our bodies, and that we would be like a living sacrifice. In other words, we put our bodies on that altar, even though we don't die, but we do in some ways that. He wants our bodies, and that's the true and proper worship he's, he's looking for. Now, that might come as we sing. It might come through our service. There's a variety of ways that our bodies can worship. But I just say it's really more than a song. Um, and Paul is very passionate here in verse 1 because he, he uses this word, I urge you. And we might just quickly read like, okay, Paul said and here he urges you. No, there's some real passion here. I urge you, you know, Christians in Rome, I urge you, this is so important. Because of God's love, 
here's what I really want you to, to know and to do. And so it involves really us dying to ourselves. So here's our first point for tonight, and that is this. We don't give to earn God's love. We give in response to his love. Hugely important. If you look at the first part of that, giving to earn God's love, that's what religion is. You're trying to do things to score credits with God and, and, and get his approval and so forth. But we don't, as Christians, we're not to give to earn his love. We already have his love. And that's why it says, in view of God's mercy towards us, his love for us. And so we give in response to it. It's hugely important. I remember one time taking somebody on a tour of the church. And uh, they were new here, and I was just walking them around. I showed them the cafe, and I said, you know, quite a few people will sit in the cafe and, uh, you know, participate in the service. They'll sing in there and sit at the tables and take notes and everything. And the person looked at me, and they said, does that count? (laughs) And you, you think about what they were saying. They were thinking, like, I do certain things, like, for, for God in such a way like, you know, I'm, I'm earning his approval. Like, okay, this counts as like, and it was like, it just kind of floored me where the response was, does this count? But obviously, we, we don't have a performance-based relationship. We have a love base. And so don't feel like you have to do things to earn his love. Just respond to it. So now we're going to build off of that in verse 2. It says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Oh, how I love God's will, because you cannot improve upon it, can you? It's good. It's pleasing. It's perfect. That's why in your life, what you always should be looking for is what is God's will? Many times people wrestle with, well, I know this is God's will, but I want to do this instead. Well, it's going to be lesser. I know it will be because his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Our will is not unless it's lined up with that. But the word transform, let's just break this verse 2 down a little bit. The word transform comes from the Greek word uh, metamorpho. Metamorpho means to, like, where we get our English word metamorphos. Metamorphosis is like changing. The best way to describe the metamorphosis process is like a caterpillar going into a cocoon, turning into a butterfly. There's a metamorphosis that took place. It was a transformation that took place. Um, And so this is a picture of what God wants for us. He wants our minds to be transformed away from something to something. And he's telling us he wants it to be moving from the pattern of this world, in other words, the world's view of things, the world's, the culture around us. And you think about what is the world's view of things? It's becoming more and more pronounced, isn't it? Let's just take the word truth. Here's what the world says about truth. First of all, a lot of times they will say there's no absolute truth. You hear that? Well, by them saying that, they're contradicting themselves. Because if you say there's no absolute truth, you've now said there is an absolute truth. And that is that there is no absolute truth. 
So right there, there's a contradiction. But what they will say is, well, that's your truth. This is my truth. It's like situational truth or ethic truth. And, and it's like, it's relative. And this is why people have gotten so far off into all this crazy thinking and so forth. The world does not have a plumb line like we do. We line our lives up and where we're to renew our mind is to the Word of God. Don't do it according to Calvary Chapel. Don't do it according to one of our pastors. Always line your life up according to the Scripture. And you can't go wrong because that's the good, pleasing, and perfect will. The best way to renew your mind by being in the Word of God. If you're not in the Word of God, you have then the opportunity for the world to transform you into its thinking. And so it's so important. Verse 2 is a, is a key verse that we really need to make sure that we don't fall into that pattern of the world. And we see that he's talking about transforming our mind. Now, why is that so important, that we transform our mind? Well, you have to tie it back to verse 1. Verse 1 talked about offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. How do we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? By transforming our mind. Our mind affects our bodies. Our our mind, first of all, you know, we have a brain where our mind is, but it, it affects how we do life. So look at this statement on the screen. What are you meditating on? What are you using your mind on? Because thoughts determine behavior. Have you ever thought about that? Your thoughts will determine your behavior. What are you meditating on? And that's why as as Christians, we should be meditating on the word of God because that's the way we transform our lives to be more in line with God's word, that our bodies become more in line with his desires because we are starting to think more and more like Christ instead of like the pattern of this world. So thoughts determine behavior. And then I have this, this little chain of way I tend to see things. I've used this for years in counseling because I find it to be so true. And that is, it all starts with our thoughts, and we've heard it for many years. The battle begins in the mind and so forth. But it starts with our thoughts. Our thoughts affect our emotions. And our emotions affect our beliefs. And our beliefs will affect our will or our actions. So let me play this out for you. Just look at that little chain of events there. Our thoughts affect our emotions, affect our beliefs, affect our will which is our actions. So you're, you have uh, a couple of your friends that you know, and they're in a room talking, and you happen to open the door and walk in the room, and they quickly look at you, and then they stop talking. What's the first thing you think? You wouldn't say it probably. What are you thinking? They're talking about me. Okay. And so then you start to think on that. You start to meditate on it. I wonder what they were talking about. I wonder if they even like me. And the more you think about it, it starts to affect your emotions. That makes me so mad. They were talking behind me, behind my back. I wonder what they were saying. Boy, that just makes me mad. Now it is affecting your beliefs. They must not like me. They're, they're two-faced to me. And then it affects your action. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm not going to invite them to my house. See how 
And maybe they were talking about something completely different. You weren't even involved in it. But it was a private conversation. And they just caught them off guard and they stopped talking about it. But so often this is what happens. And you know why that often happens? It's because the enemy messes with our minds. He plants those thoughts there. You're scrolling through your Facebook feed. And you see, oh, so-and-so looked like they had a party over at their house. You zero in. Oh, they invited so-and-so. They invited so-and-so. Why didn't I get invited? Next thing you know, what does the mind start doing? Starts meditating on that. Stirring up your emotions, right? Now, that can happen in a negative way. It can also happen in a positive way. And how does it happen in a positive way? By meditating on the Word. By reflecting how much God loves us, that He's forgiven us, that He's, he's He takes care of us, and that gives us that sense of, of peace and of joy, and it allows our faith to rise up. And now all of a sudden we have this belief of like, you know, that God is for me, who can be against me? And now all of a sudden, and then it begins to affect your actions where you can be more secure and, and so forth. So this little pattern works in the negative and also works in the positive. That's why verse 2 is so important that we renew our mind. We don't go falling into the pattern of the world. You listen to negative stuff all day, what's going to happen? It's going to affect your feelings. And those feelings will begin to affect your beliefs, affect your actions. So, Now, what are some thoughts that we can have that are contrary to the will of God? There's a lot of them, but I'm going to put up on the screen just a few of the major ones that we probably all battle with. Condemnation uh, is a big one. Those thoughts that we have where we just feel so condemned. And that doesn't come from God. We already know that from Romans 8.1. Uh, discontentment. Greed. Envy. You know, I don't like what I have. I need to have this. I'm watching what other people have. They have that. I don't want to lose that. And all that, again, thoughts contrary to the Word of God. Fear and anxiety. Big one. You know, the Bible tells us don't to be anxious for anything. You know, he, he tells us that, you know, fear not, for I am with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And obviously a big one is pride. Where we, we build ourselves up. And we're going to talk about that as we, as we move through this chapter. So those are some things that can really affect our um, thought life and so forth. But let's keep going. Verse 3, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So now Paul's going to shift gears here a little bit. So he's already still talking about our thought life. Remember, he's talking about renewing our mind, thinking like Jesus. And he's having to give us now like, okay, don't think too much of yourself. Everything we have, by the way, is by God's grace. And that's why he starts up, by the grace given to me, I say to you, don't think of yourself more than highly than you ought. He's saying to use sober judgment in accordance with faith that God has given to each of you. So everything we really have is by God's grace. And there is such a thing as false humility. You know, false humility is that, well, woe is me. I put myself down. You feel like that's, that's not biblical. See, true humility is not putting ourselves down. It's esteeming others. It's valuing others above ourselves. Does that make sense? 
It's not putting ourselves down. It's actually valuing others above yourself. That's true humility. So that we can, you know, think more. We don't, we don't put ourselves down. See, if, if you put yourself down, you think, well, that's humility. I just beat myself up. I, I'm no good. I'm no good. You know, that's, a, that's humility. No. First of all, that's, I, I think it's a form of pride because you're thinking of things differently than what God's thinking about you. But how can you encourage others? How can you build others up if you're not built up yourself? So you need to, like, know. Know who God has made you. Have, know your identity in Christ. Feel good about yourself. But then you esteem others higher than yourself. That's where true humility comes in. And uh, so let's keep going. Verse 4 is what we consider to be the administration gifts of the Spirit. There's seven of them listed there. We're not going to go through each of them in detail, but let's just go through them. It says, for just as, a, for just as each of us has one body, so he's talking about our physical body as an analogy here, with many members... These members do not all have the same function. So we know that. Our hand is not the same as our foot, the same as our eye or our ear. So in Christ, so now he changes it from our human body to the, really the body of Christ. Though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, what prophecy is, is speaking a word from God for others. Then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's show mercy, do it cheerfully. And like I said, there's seven items listed there. We could spend all night just kind of defining those. But for the most part, you understand we all have different functions. Some of you are really great at mercy, and you probably serve in our hospital visitation team because that's people with high gifts of mercy are wonderful for going into the hospital. I'm not the best guy to go into the hospital, to be honest with you, because I'm pretty low on mercy. I just confess. I'm much more of an encourager. So I'd probably go into the hospital, and I'd probably be, come on, you got to get out of there. You're going to start to make sure you're eating right, and, you know, what are you doing? Why did you get in here in the first place? And I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But, uh, you know, I'm not the best person to have a shoulder to cry on. I just say, now, some of you are. Now, I'm going to use a, a very real example that just happened recently. You heard me talk about it. I just got back, Barb and I... Uh, we're on a team with uh, 34 people from the church here. We went to Guatemala for a week. We did medical missions. We served down there, saw about 1,000 patients, led a couple hundred people to Christ. It was just an awesome. And so I have the picture of the team here. There's a team. You can probably recognize a few of the people. We had people from the Sebastian campus and, and here in Melbourne and from the, uh, the uh, Calvary uh, Espanol campus. But there's a variety of people there with various different gifts. And I just want to use some of them because for us to do what we did, we all had to make, there's doctors on there, there's a pharmacist in there, there's uh, nurses in there, there's translators in there, there's some general people that can't do anything, like myself in there, I can't speak Spanish and I don't know medical, but I can lead, okay? But there's all these different people. Now I'm going to pick on one person in particular because he's a retired banker. 
And he went on the trip. And you know what his role was on the trip? He was dipping urine. Checking for UTIs, looking at little test strips, checking for pregnancies and so forth. So the retired banker is dipping urine. You know? Because we all have different functions. For us to make a, a, like a team like that work, we all had to... But we weren't all the same. For us to be able to accomplish... There was another banker in there. I'm just picking on the bankers. And he was helping me direct people from the waiting area to the triage area. Then we'd take triage people to uh, an exam room. And, and, and then sometimes to the people who were there from the church. And we were like the, the runners. And we all had a function. We all had a role. We all, and you can take the picture down now. But had we all been trying to do the exact same thing, it would have been a major flop. What we had was we had defined roles. We all knew what we were to do, and we did it, and we did it unto the Lord, and it was just a beautiful picture. That's a picture of the body of Christ. Now, my challenge to all of you is where do you fit into the body of Christ? Are you amputated off where you're not a part of the body of Christ? You're like, well, I'm a believer, but the body of Christ is us all working together, flowing together. We all have different roles. Some of you are small group leaders. Some of you are serving in guest services. Some of you serve in the bookstore or the cafe or the kids' ministry. Some of you are, are, are serving in production right now, running cameras or in the production booth. And some are on the worship band. I mean, there's so many different areas where people can serve. Some of you have been given the ability to Make a lot of money through business and having a really smart mind. You know, the gift of giving, you know what is required to have the gift of giving here? And these are, we're all to give, but this is extra special, is you have the gift of being able to make money to be able to give. And for sometimes people don't see that as a gift from God. Like, man, God's gifted certain people to do really well financially to help fund the gospel being spread throughout the world. So it's interesting how it all flows together. That's what Paul is saying here. And as we move through the rest of the chapter, I want us to look at seven things, excuse me, three things, where we're going to contrast the thinking of the kingdom of God versus the thinking of the world. And here comes the first one. You'll see it on the screen. Kingdom of God, here's our thinking, that God has gifted me to serve him and others. Okay, that's the mindset of what we're just now reading. That's how he's gifted us. We all have a gift. You can't say you're not gifted. He's given all of us a gift, at least one. But we're to use that to serve God and serve others. But the world has a thinking. And the world's mindset is, my time and resources are for me. It's a selfish mindset. But remember what God is saying here in his word? Renew your mind. Be transformed. Allow your mind to be... So if you're caught up in some of these thinking, if you're thinking, well, no, my time, my resources, that's, that's mine. Then you have... You need to have your mind renewed. It needs to be transformed. So now we're going to look at some other areas. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So we're going to start to get into some motivation parts of our thinking here in a moment. He says, love must be sincere. That sincere really means without wax. You might be thinking, well, what what do you you mean? In the original language, sincere was used as a term that 
it was it was something that was not damaged and repaired with wax. So they would have pottery or they would have statues, and let's say there was a crack, a flaw, the nose came off of a statue. If the person was not sincere, if they were not a person of integrity, they would take some wax and they would put a new nose on there, get all painted up so it didn't look like it was any problem, sell it to someone. And what would happen when it got really hot? The nose is running. (laughs) Then it's not sincere. Okay? So sincere is without wax. That's where that term comes from. Because people were not always... So he's saying, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And I just want to touch on that hate what is evil here for a moment. Because we have to be very careful as Christians. Again, we live in the world, but we're not to think like the world. Be careful not to be entertained by evil. Because some people are being entertained constantly by evil. You know what that does to you? That desensitizes you to evil. God wants us to not be entertained by evil. He wants us to be, again, our minds being renewed. So what is our attitude? Hate evil. And sometimes people are paying money to be entertained by evil. And so I'm just, I'm just reading it the way it is there. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So he's just, again, still building on this whole thing about loving others, you know, putting others ahead of ourselves, honoring them above ourselves. So it's this whole thing on humility and love. Don't be lacking in zeal. In other words, be on fire for Jesus. Be passionate about him. And, uh, you know, one of the things is that if, if, you, if Satan can get you in your mind thinking that God is mad at you somehow, you're not going to want to serve him. You're going to want to pull back from God. If, if you think God is mad at you because Satan has planted that, eye, that lie in your head, what's going to happen is you're not going to be motivated to go spend time with him. It's just like what you would do if, if you thought a friend was mad at you right now. You'd probably want to avoid him. And that's what many times people do with God. So this is why having that right thinking is so important. So here's let's look at the next one. King of God, uh, kingdom of God thinking is that I serve God and others out of gratitude to God and love. You know, sincere love. That's my motive. That I serve God. Remember, we are to use our bodies as a living sacrifice. That I serve him out of gratitude and love. Now, the world, I want people to serve me. Now, or they may say, I may serve, but I'll do it selfishly. What's in it for me? What perk do I get back for my service? Do I get certain credit for it? Do people like look at me and, and so forth? And, and, and I just tell you that sometimes people serve, but they do it selfishly. As, as Christians, our mindset should be, no, we're doing it out of gratitude to God. We're not doing it because we have to. We try really hard to, as pastors, not to manipulate you to do things. Okay, We're not going to come to you and twist your arm and put a guilt trip on you. We're going to present things, though, as the Scripture does, because the Scripture does talk about serving. But again, we're not going to guilt you into it. You're going to have to do it for the right motive. Now, what are the wrong motives for serving God? And, and there are some things you see there on the screen. 
One is to earn his, God's love. And we already talked about that. You don't earn God's love. But sometimes people think, oh, if I do this, and, then, and if I don't do it, then God's mad at me and, and so forth. But no, that's a wrong one. Another one is to impress others. It's like when the eyes are on you, then you're serving. Oh, look at me. No. Or to feel good about yourself. Oh, I really feel good because I did this or that. No, again, it's not a right motive. Now, I will say this. Jesus said it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So you will be blessed. You'll, you'll feel good, but that's not our motive. That's a side benefit, I believe. And the last one is don't, don't, motive, don't uh, serve God out of guilt or manipulation. And again, that's what we try hard not to do as, as pastors here in the church. And, and I know I've been in churches before where I felt definitely get, felt manipulated. And, uh, you know, most people are pretty wise to it. So again, be careful. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Just some really good, strong points there. You know what it says, patient in affliction? It doesn't say we will avoid affliction. We will have affliction. I don't think we can escape it. But he's telling us to make sure you're patient in it. Persevere through it. Be joyful in your hope. Faithful in prayer. And then it's verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Uh, I think it's interesting there that it says the first priority that we have in serving others, helping people in need, is our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our first priority. More than serving people that are in the world, our first priority is, as it says there, that we help those who are a part of the body of Christ, that we help our brothers and sisters, share with the Lord's people who are in need, and then practice hospitality. Here's a little challenge to you. When's the last time you've had people over to your home? Now, some of you say, well, I do that all the time. That's great. You're practicing hospitality. But that's what it's saying there. We live in a day and age and in a culture that people are less and less hospitable. And uh, I know my wife and I, we, we practice hospitality. We have people over. Probably a week ago you told me, I told you that we had too many people over. Because they stayed with us for a whole week. <laughs> 16. Did I happen to mention the number? <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> we practice hospitality. And I, I don't know if I always had the right motive, right attitude. God forgive me. But the thing about it is you open your home, you open your heart to people. Okay? So practice hospitality. That's what the word's saying there. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Ooh, now you're getting really personal. That's really hard, isn't it? To bless those who persecute you? I'm convinced that we can't do this apart from the Holy Spirit living in us. We need God's help. So bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I think it's interesting that it says do not curse because what, what do we want to do? Those that persecute us, we want to curse them. And then it says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And I, I think of verse 15, I think about the wonderful community group that Barb and I are a part of, that we have a lot of fun. We always celebrate people's anniversaries and birthdays. Somehow there's always food involved. So we rejoice. But I remember when one of the members of our group had uh, a daughter pass away this, past, this year. And we were there in the home and... and just loving up and just the ministry of presence and bringing food and just being with them. I mean, you, you, 
rejoice with those, but then there's times where you also cry with those, and you and and you share the 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 needs in a way where you, you know, you mourn with those who mourn. As I said, I don't know any other way to say it. That's why it's so important that we are in relationship, that we are doing community together. And I know many of you are in Christian community. If you're not, you're missing out on all the opportunities to do these type of things. But we'll give you an opportunity. But I'm not manipulating you, okay? Good January, new groups start, okay? Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. So again, he's talking about that humility. Do not be conceited. You know what, what that really just shows me, that we are to live in harmony. You know what's hard for people today, in this day and age? It's hard for people to live with, in harmony with people different than themselves. See, in, in, as Christ follower, there's no room for us to be prejudiced, racist, There's no room for any of that kind of stuff. We're all people. We're all of one race, the human race. And you know what? It doesn't matter what economic. I mean, it's way more than skin color or culture or language. Sometimes people do it based on income level or where people live. Don't don't be that way. That's what the scripture is saying there. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of even low position. Don't be conceited. Why does it have to tell us that? Because remember, he's trying to renew our mind. He's trying to get to think about how we think about things like Jesus. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, and that's a really important part of it, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So we start to really get into this last section now, which really has to deal with a lot with forgiveness and how do we handle people that are against us, persecuting us. We already read that we're to bless and not curse, but he goes into more detail here. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be, do what's right in the eyes of everyone. And it says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Why does it need to say that in verse 18? Sometimes it's not possible. If you've reached out to someone and you want to be at peace and they don't want it, they refuse, then it's not possible. But it says as far as it depends on you. So you do your part to have peace. But here's the thing. Forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes at least two. You can't have reconciliation if the other person doesn't want it. So what the scripture is saying is that we need to do our part. Make sure that we've done our part. But if they don't want to reciprocate, that's on them. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Oh, a lot of people like this now. Oh, good. We're getting to the good part. Leave room for God's wrath. Get them, God, get them. I don't think that's what he's talking about. For it is written... It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now let's just stop there. When we forgive, here's the important thing. We're not letting anybody off the hook. When we forgive, somebody's done something truly wrong to you. What you're doing is you're turning it over to God. And think about this for a moment. Who's better able to handle it, you or God? God is. Then why do we think that we need to somehow 
get justice. We are not the one to get justice. We turn it over to the just one. Let him take care of it. And you know what? If there's a penalty to pay, he can make him pay. Let, let, let there be room for God's wrath. Now, we remember this. We're not perfect either. Do you want God's wrath on you? Two wrongs don't make it right. So he's saying, turn it over. Let God take care of it. He, he's even given us a, a word He says um, that he says, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I'll repay, says the Lord. And it says, on the contrary. So instead of doing that, instead of getting revenge, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in other words, let's not be overcome. Let's do good to those who are harming us. And I know some of you are like, man, I got that part underlined. Let's heap some burning coals on their head. Yeah, let's get them. Let's heap these burning coals on their head. Fry, baby, fry. That's not what that means. To know what this means, you have to go back in history. It goes back to an an Egyptian practice that evidently was also followed in Israel that when somebody was like really repentive, really remorseful for what they had done, they would walk through town with a pot of burning coals on their head, showing they were suffering, showing that they were very sorry, they were very remorseful for what they did. That's what that means. In other words, if you show them good when they've been bad to you, the goal is to help them become remorseful. Like, oh man, I shouldn't have treated them that way. Wow, they're being so nice to me and the way I treated them. Oh man, it really makes me feel bad now. That's that heaping burning coals on their head. That's what that means, okay? I've heard all kinds of different things like, oh, it means like you're moving fire from one fireplace to the next because they didn't have a light or something. But no, it goes back to this, this practice of, of remorse, public remorse actually. So as we we close up this evening, the last part of this kingdom of God thinking versus the world is that this, I forgive and overcome evil by doing good. That's how how God wants me to do. We, We forgive and we overcome evil by doing good. What's the world's thinking? I am hurt and I want revenge. And that's not what God is saying there to us, is it? Leave room for God's wrath. Turn it over to God. He can take care of it. Over and over in Scripture, we are told to forgive as we have been forgiven. Tells us that in Colossians. Tells that in Ephesians chapter 4. That we forgive as God has forgiven us in Christ. How has God forgiven you and me? Did we deserve it? No. He chose to forgive us though anyway, right? Do the people that hurt us deserve it? Probably not. But we do it because we forgive as we have been forgiven. We are not meant to hold unforgiveness towards anyone. The quickest way to a miserable life is to hold unforgiveness. And I can truly say this, that probably somewhere over 80%, maybe it's over 90% of the root causes of the counseling that I've done over the years, and I've counseled hundreds of people over 20 years. 
the root cause in 80 to 90% of it is unforgiveness. People holding on to stuff and they don't even recognize it. And many times they're, they're here talking about this person and this problem and they're dealing with this and I just start asking some questions. And sometimes I ask a question about somebody in their past and being hurt and all of a sudden it's like, you can just see their whole demeanor change. Like, well, how do you know? Like I'm reading their mail somehow. It, it is. I mean, it really is. And until you forgive, you're going to be bound up. You're not going to be free. So I just want to, as we get ready to, to close, just camp out on this forgiveness for a moment because it's such an important thing. Let's first of all look at what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not downplaying the sin against you. Nowhere in Scripture do you say, like, well, you know, it's no big deal. Let it go. It's no big deal. No, we don't downplay it. We don't condone it. Next, forgiveness is not forgetting it. You've heard many people say, well, you need to forgive and forget. That's impossible. We have a mind. God's given us a memory. If someone's hurt you, you'll remember that until the day you die. So it's not forgive and forget. Next, it's not reconciling. I already shared, forgiveness requires one. Reconciliation requires two. Two different things. And fourth thing there is forgiveness is not trusting. You can forgive someone and not trust them. Trust, trust takes two things. It takes time and it takes a person being trustworthy. So in other words, you borrow $100 from me, I ask you to pay it back. You don't pay it back. I got to forgive you. According to Scripture, I got to forgive you. But I don't have to give you another $100. I don't have to trust you. Trust is earned through a person being trustworthy and with time. If the trust has been broken in a relationship, it's going to take time for it to be built back up. And that's part of what we do when we do marriage counseling is help people separate those out, the trust and the forgiveness. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is acknowledging the hurt. Yes, that person hurt me. Yes, let's bring it to the light. Okay, it is a hurt. But it also remembers that God forgave us. And the last thing is it turns the matter over to God. What we just read about, you know, leave room for God's wrath is mine. Give it to the Lord. As we get ready to, to pray here, um, I, don't know, I don't know where everybody's at. Maybe some of you are holding some unforgiveness right now. You know what? The person that, you're un, un, that you are holding unforgiveness towards, you're not hurting them. They may not even know it. But you're hurting yourself. I know that. I know that according to Scripture. It affects your prayer life, it affects your relationship with God, it affects your relationship with other people. Now, when you forgive, first of all, it's a decision, it's not a feeling. When you forgive, if they have not come to you and asked for forgiveness, you don't need to go and tell them. Okay? If, because sometimes people will do this. They'll go up to someone and say, I forgive you, and it just makes things worse. Like, well, forgive me for what? I didn't do anything. You know? But... You forgive them to God. So you give it to God. You free yourself. You give it to God. Then if they come to you and ask for forgiveness, then you express it back. 
But you don't have to go to a person and express it if they have not asked for it or they're not repentive and so forth. But we're not meant to carry it. Amen? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we've been going through this chapter tonight, very practical on how to renew our minds, how to be transformed, to, to be where our body is that living sacrifice through how we serve, using our gifts for you, how we do it with the right motive of love and humility, and also how we forgive. that We don't hold things against people, especially those who are persecuting us, those who are true enemies. Lord, help us all to overcome evil by doing good. And I just pray for the the church family here tonight. I pray if there's anyone here who's holding unforgiveness towards anyone, they may even be dead. I pray that tonight, before they go to sleep, they will have, they'll do business with you, Lord, and they will truly turn it over to you. They will truly forgive from their heart. Lord, I pray that they won't even be able to sleep tonight until they have forgiven the person that they may be holding unforgiveness towards. And then, Lord, I just pray that you'd help them to continue to walk in that forgiveness, to continue not to hold it against the person to truly turn it over to you. And that scripture says that we can truly meet needs of people who are even our enemies, that we can be kind to them, that we can truly overcome evil by doing good. So, Lord, renew our minds. Help us to be more like you. We want to think like you because you have the answers to life. You are the all-wise one. And I just pray if there's anyone here who's not in a right relationship with you, that their greatest need tonight is to have their own sins forgiven. And I just pray that they won't leave here tonight until they come down front at the very end and come and talk to me and that we can, we can pray. And people's sins can be forgiven tonight by turning them over by turning their lives over to you, to follow you from this night forward. We just pray for that as well. Lord, as we come into this break of Wednesday nights now, Lord, I just pray you just give us wonderful times with friends and family during the Christmas season. Help us just to be able to invite people to our different special things that we're doing, including this Saturday night or the Christmas Eve services. And we just pray it would be a very special Christmas season for each and every one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.